Welcome, welcome, Unsolicited Advice, Season 3, first episode. Welcome back to everybody tuning in. We've got some very talented, very intelligent, very powerful people with us today. You guys want to introduce yourselves? Sure, I'll go first. Uh, my name is Rachel Kintal, newly minted PhD in anthropology. I am <laughs> <laughs> um, currently teaching at Fairfield University. I am from New York of Haitian descent. And I am currently on the academic job market and co-founder of a amazing website called TheEbonyTower.com. Amazing. Yay. Yeah. Um, that, that was really good. <laughs> okay, I guess I have to follow that. Uh, my name is Daphne Penn. I am a fourth year PhD student in education at Harvard University. Uh, similar to Rachel, I am also the co founder of the Ebony Tower. Um, this is actually my second PhD program. I did not graduate from the first one, but I switched over. So I have a lot of academic experience and I, I clearly love this lifestyle so. <laughs> 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 have a lot to say about it yeah oh wow this is really exciting i didn't know that so well i guess first for, uh, first and foremost could you guys share i guess the mission of ebony tower sure would you like to do that daphne <laughs> sure so um the ebony tower it started as just uh kind of a website or kind of an idea we as black black academics um black <laughs> academics um often encounter a lot of challenges um in terms of just getting into graduate school thriving when we get there you know succeeding on the job market and we realized that there was a, a need for a space where people could come together to talk about their experiences, to share advice, to share guidance and like help each other, pull each other up. So the mission of the Ebony Tower is simply to just be a, a resource, an academic resource for scholars of color who want to get into graduate school, who want to thrive and who want to succeed on the academic job market. Um, so yeah. Oh my God, that was incredible! It's amazing. Like, yeah. Well put together. You, you have anything to add? I don't even. No, I mean you know, <laughs> Daphne covered a lot of bases. Yeah. Um, for me, I um, was interested in the idea of Ebony Tower because a lot of the best advice I've gotten throughout grad school and a lot of the accomplishments that I've uh, been able to achieve have been through the advice of other academics of color. And so to have a space for us to be able to share this advice and know-how with each other seemed like something that was too important to let it, you know, just go. We had to go forward with this mission. Oh, man, for sure. Wait, so how did you guys even, how do you guys meet? How did that come? <laughs> how do you guys, like, the Migos so form? I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm curious. We actually have, like, several points of contact <laughs> between Daphne and I. Mm -hmm. uh, As it often is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we formally met at my high school best friend's Ph.D. graduation in Ohio. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And Daphne knows this friend through Spelman, right? Undergrad? Oh, well, we did Teach for America together. Teach for America. We were okay. Teach for America roommates. Okay, see. Yeah. <laughs> but it was Atlanta. It was Atlanta. Yeah. It was Atlanta, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then we realized we knew, I knew people that were in her program from my time in D.C. Um, so the yeah. Harvard Education PhD cohort, I had connections through just 
black dope people in DC who used to chill black. together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we just kind of started talking. Um, it was something that I had thought about in the past. And, you know, we just kind of like, it was like a synergy between us. It was just kind of like, wow, I'm really interested in this. We should actually do it. And the steps just kind of, everything just kind of went into place. I think that was January or December when we kind of connected. And by April, we had kind of got the plan together that we were going to launch in August of that year. Um, and it happened. Um and we tried to start the website, you know, based on like those questions that a lot of people have about graduate school. How do I get in? How do I ask for letters of recommendation? You know, how, how should I write I my statement funding? of purpose? Yeah. Um, how do you get funding? I was saying. Yo, oh, yeah. Yeah. How do you get funding? So all of those like early questions or preliminary questions people have about graduate school, we kind of try to build a foundation. And then from there, you know, we want people to be more interactive. Like, what do you want to know about graduate school so that we can like expand what we have on the website? And I think it works out really well because we're both in, we're each in different phases of the process. Mm -hmm. So we can cover a lot of bases between the two of us, you know, like uh, Daphne is still, like grant writing, you know, figuring mm -hmm. out advisor and dissertation proposal. And now I'm kind of covering the job market side. Mm -hmm. And last year I was covering the writing the dissertation and how mm -hmm. to stay sane while you do that, you know. Oh, man. So I guess I'm curious because I'm um I'm still in the baby of the process. I'm on my second year of my Aww. program. So I guess I'm curious, so like what are your biggest challenges right now that you guys are like writing on and sharing with with the people? Ooh, what oh, yeah. are our biggest challenges? <laughs> um, I mean, you know, for me, my biggest challenge right now is the sort of waiting game uh, for mm -hmm. trying to get a job in academia. The process is so drawn out. I've probably done about 30 applications since July, and wow. maybe I've heard back from five, wow. and I've had three interviews, and then hopefully that will lead to a campus interview but maybe not. And if that doesn't happen, right, you'll do that process all over again next year. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. What is that even? I'm curious. Like, what is that even like the, the interview process? Like Ugh, intense. Oh, <laughs> sounds crazy. Yeah. I mean, there are different um, phases of interviews now. So mm -hmm. usually it starts with a Skype interview. And then I was invited for one um like a conference interview so for all the major fields i'm sure american uh, psychological association mm -hmm. does this uh for me it's the american anthropological association meetings mm -hmm. they host interviews at the meetings wow um so i did one of those um and then maybe you'll do another skype interview and then if you're lucky you'll do a two or three day campus interview where you go to the school you meet administration you meet the students you meet the faculty you do a mock class you do a research talk i mean like wow. the hoops we do for jobs it's <laughs> <Right. laughs> oh, crazy mean, it's definitely interesting to me so i'm um not even a baby ph i'm a, I'm a fetus phd <laughs> um in that i'm uh, planning to apply this year later this year for phd programs so it's oh, listening to what you're saying about the job search it's I like have my dad in my ear. He's always like PhD. Like you'll never find a job. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and I'm like, oh wow, <laughs> oh it's hard. Um, but I think I mean that's the kind of like valuable experience though. That's really like helpful to 
draw from in like the website right like that you're coming from this place where you're not only meeting sort of like the successes of this you know being a, a black academic but also some of like the very real challenges of it too um, many mm-hmm. very real challenges <laughs> many um, and I think lots the partnership between <laughs> Daphne and I is really great because Daphne is one of those people who's like academia like you know, I don't need a job necessarily in academia. Mm. So she can speak mm. even more to the other side, you know, and probably who knows, like in a year or two, I might decide, like, forget this private sector is where yeah. it's at. <laughs> Let me like be able to afford living in New York City. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the thing. Academia. I love it. Um, I like being on campus. I like the schedule. I like teaching. Um, but there's a different Academia is just different. You're always on. Um, You're never off work, even when you're at home. There's just always something to do. The work never ends. And so when you're looking for a job, sometimes you ask yourself, like, do I want to live like this forever? (laughs) Do I want a nine to five? Um, And so I'm, I'm not on the job market yet, but that is something that I'm like thinking about in my head, like what type of job do I want? What will fulfill me moving forward? Uh, and because I'm getting my PhD in education, I, I do have the ability I can stay in academia or I could, you know, easily find a job making a difference in a school district. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Oh, man, that's really interesting. Because that's kind of the reason I got into clinical psychology as well, because you could go to academia or you could go to the clinical practice or you could do the consulting. You kind of can have your hands in a bunch of different things. And more options mm-hmm. is definitely a better thing yeah but there's still something like something a a little bit alluring right about academia like if you could have like that one job in the pocket like i feel like a lot of people like accept it with with maybe a few reservations but there's something exciting about it yeah i would say it is (laughs) there was hesitation (laughs) no so for me i because this like the best advice i have is like you it's easier to leave academia than it is to you know go into like the private sector and try to come back into academia Mm -hmm. so i do believe i will go on the academic job market i will try to get that academic job and i I hope that i will be happy um in that job but i i know that that is the better bet to go academia and if things don't work out i can always go out but it's not that easy to go back the other the other route so mm. i do know that much mm-hmm. and i've read a lot of things too i think i probably had a very romantic idea of academia when i started right mm-hmm. like oh the professorial life and <laughs> you wear your planal <laughs> and i don't know like live on a beautiful campus um but what i've heard from people different generations of teaching is that that experience that potentially was true for some people decades ago mm-hmm. is becoming less true as education becomes increasingly privatized and neoliberalized right and so professors are tasked with so much more than they used to be it used to be that you chose whether you were more research oriented or teaching oriented and then that was your lane and mm-hmm. you know you did whatever was your passion now you know there's so much pressure on professors to do it all you have to publish enough you have to continue to do cutting-edge research and your students have to like you or else they're (laughs) going to put like bad comments on ratemyprofessor.com right (laughs) and like admin is down your back for Mm -hmm. this and the pay isn't even comparable to all of the pressure that you're under so Mm -hmm. you know uh, 
I hate to sound so negative. No, <laughs> no that's, that's but it's Im- real. That's right? important. Also, to I mean, there is we still see that sort of like romanticized view of at least. I mean, I still have it to some extent, right? And I haven't yeah. started yet. Yeah. Where, where us, us babies over here still have their romantic <laughs> yeah. side of you. You're out here popping balloons <laughs> right? and whatnot. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's not what you think. Get out. Get out, part two, campus edition. But oh. on, a, on a positive note, like, <laughs> Thank you very much. Bring it back. to say back, for being able to set your own research agenda, to yeah. have, like, the autonomy that comes. So, like, despite the fact that it's, like, a publish or perish environment, and, you know, there's a lot of, like, administrative things that are happening now in terms of, like, academia with professors not being the people who are running universities or PhDs not running universities, there is still a level of autonomy that I think no, no other profession, I don't, I don't know any other profession where you have this much freedom over what you choose to research mm-hmm. um, and what you choose to do. And it's up to you to decide like what is meaningful to you and maybe your research agenda will be what you need to keep you pushing through when yeah. you know, you're dealing with all of the other things that come with academia. So that's kind of how I think about it. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I'm curious. So you guys have got to like interview a lot of, you know, really talented, well-accomplished uh, professors for the website. I guess what what are their views on on, on this conversation? Hmm. I mean, <laughs> it there are lots of diverse views. I think everyone says it's not easy. <laughs> you know, it's not easy. Um I'm trying I, to go ahead, Daphne. I was going to say one thing that kind of comes up, I feel, with um, a lot of the people that we've talked to, uh, new professors especially, is kind of like this tension between, you know, wanting to strive and needing to, like, put your head down and get your publications in, but also wanting to be the bridge to students of color. Mm -hmm. When you are a professor of color, sometimes you're the only one in your department, and you want to be that support system for students of color um but there's like a lot of emotional labor that goes into that that's not accounted for when it's time for tenure and so you know it's just interesting to see that tension and the thing that i hope the ebony tower can do is like bridge that little bit Mm -hmm. to be kind of a source of support for students um because our professors you know they're here to support us but you know they're also on their grind so just kind of seeing how like professors of color are just really dedicated to our success as students um and we also have to find a way to like uplift them and support them and make sure that you know they're getting tenure so that they can change things Mm, Um, because there's a desire by many people to like change things for the better in academia absolutely definitely and i think that pressure too about you know the emotional work that you're talking about when people of color in academia it's not even just the relationships it's also in often right our research is focused on race or we're teaching the courses that have to do with uh, injustice or sexism and all these things. And I find that there is an emotional toll that is, you know, even I tend to under 
underappreciate. And then after the semester, I'm exhausted, Mm -hmm. you know, like to be in a classroom with 30 students and maybe two of them or three of them are of color and to talk to them about racism, about sexism. For some of them, it's the first times they're encountering these theories. Right. It's it's exhausting. And I can imagine that on the tenure track route, when you have so many other responsibilities, that's just so depleting on uh, academics of color. So I hope Ebony Tower gives the kind of support to keep us moving and not only to achieve tenure, right, but to become uh, uh, assistant professors and associate professors Mm -hmm. in those kind of upper positions as well. I think sometimes we forget to talk about. Yeah. Well, I just have a kind of on that note you're talking about, like with the research so often also being on topics that relate to your own identity, your own lived experience. Right. I'm curious, we haven't asked yet what both of you, you know, what your research is on and what yeah. it's focused. Yeah. Do you want to go first, Stephanie? You know, I'll go. So you <laughs> kind of asked the question about like your biggest challenge right now. Yeah. And I don't really think I knew until it was time to write my dissertation proposal how difficult it is to come up with a concise research question, which is what (laughs) I'm trying to do right now. It's really difficult. Like I've submitted like drafts of like many proposals to my advisor and to different professors. They're like, you have a great topic. You just need to come up with a question i'm like you don't say that question mark right there like, <laughs> me and daphne had a long mark. conversation like, no, about no this but <laughs> generally my research um i'm really interested in how like demographic change in neighborhoods and in cities um impacts uh like intergroup dynamics in schools so like i did a research project for my master's thesis looking at the relationship between gentrification and parents' um, policy attitudes around redistricting and school segregation. Um, That was my master's thesis. And I'm actually now starting to look at, um, in the South, there has been a a increase or influx of Latino immigrants in like non-border states. So Mm -hmm. like in Tennessee, in North Carolina, um, in Kentucky, like we're seeing like larger Latino populations. And I'm really interested in understanding like how that is shaping the work of educators, um, their identities as educators. So I, I can only speak for myself, but when I uh, went into teaching, I taught elementary school, I kind of had a vision for who I was going to help. I was going to help people that looked like me. And it was interesting because um, in my second year teach, uh, teaching, I had a white student and a Latino student. It was a predominantly black school. And I had the most diverse classroom. And it's just interesting because I had never thought of myself as a, a teacher of like others. And it's kind of like you have to like rethink about like your identity and what it means to like focus your attention on marginalized populations that are not black Mm -hmm. so i'm really interested in understanding like how like these shifting demographics in schools are shaping the work of like black educators particularly who have been dedicated their lives to like uplifting black students um so yeah, um, yeah, and how it generally shapes intergroup dynamics. So like, you know, parents and how it's shaping like uh, dynamics between students who come from very different backgrounds. So you guys, um, you watch Insecure? 
Yeah. I was about to ask you about that. I was about to ask you about that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, so like thinking yes. about that principle, like yeah. you, you know, must have been so excited when those episodes yes. came out. In the right place, but he is just—it's not right. And like you have to rethink your role as as uh, an attenuator of inequality, even when the population that you're serving doesn't match who you originally envisioned as your population so like it's mm-hmm. so interesting that that came up because i definitely had that idea before i watched insecure but i was like <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it validated your research too right, right? like it, yes it did. <laughs> for the culture <laughs> i thought that was very well said you could tell them that they're crazy they don't understand what you're talking about that's, right? that's, that's that was beautiful. fascinating i was like wow can't wait to read this yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, her, you. the thing about the question is like it's not really a it's not a critique based in anything but sort of methodology. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like we were we were complaining about this for a long time the other day about how it's like, you know, this idea that like, oh, your your research question should fit into these type of prototypes of scientific like uh, research framing i guess Mm -hmm. where a plus b equals like x Mm -hmm. and so that's the the criticism they're trying to lay uh to daphne's uh research Mm. which is it's just silly i've heard it so many times uh even in my own department so i was like oh this is something people tend to say a lot (laughs) Um, so if anyone's listening and they're like what are they talking about at least you know people say this a lot to graduate students that's like the perfect example though like i think of what Ebony Tower brings to the table, right? Like yeah. That right there, <laughs> just knowing that if, if your question, if you have a brand of research that makes sense conceptually, but you people don't understand it in the form of like a very simple like question that there could be a difficulty there. Yeah. yeah. And that's something mm-hmm. that a lot, not a, a lot of people might, might know at the onset. And yeah. I think uh, specifically for people of color, like I saw this happen quite a bit in uh, my department. I'm trying to think, did I say my university? Hopefully not. Anyway, before I out people. But, you know, I've heard a lot of professors say to grad students, like, you know, who are studying their identity, like, nobody cares. Mm. Crazy. Like, mm-hmm. why is this important? Why is it important for us to have a research project looking at the experience of gay Asian men in California? Like, legit, why should we care? And I was like, why should we not care? You know, like, this is what I hope Ebony Tower can, like, before that person turns around and says, you know what, F academia, I'm not doing this anymore. Like, they can go to us for support. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Kind of along those lines, Rachel, it's like also knowing when critiques and challenges are coming from a place of I want to push you because you might hear Mm -hmm. this from other people who don't care about you. And when it's coming from a place of, I don't care about you or your research agenda Um, because I have heard those type of things. You are, you might have a really good research topic, but you are going to have to justify again, why this is important. You know, if other people haven't looked at, you can't just say, you know, other people, like no one has done this in literature before, because then they might say, maybe they didn't do it for a good reason. Mm, So you have to have like really good reasons for why your research is important. Um, And it it relates to like what other people have and have not done. So, Mm. you know, find like mentors where they are going to push you. And if they ask you those questions, they're doing it from a place of, because I don't want you out there 
not being able to answer questions you should be able to answer and when they're doing it from a place of I don't respect you or your work as a scholar so Mm -hmm. yeah that's an important distinction I think you know like um and also I feel like one of the strengths that you guys are insinuating about Ebony Tower is also just so much from what I've heard um (laughs) so much of academia and especially like the process of going through a PhD program can be so isolating and I feel like that's Mm. you know more so if you're a person of color more so if you're black like more so if you're a woman like there's so many um ways that your identities can kind of layer on and make that experience more challenging um so Ebony Tower sort of provides a space where you you realize that you're like not the only one even if you may be the only one in your program or like one of the only ones in your school absolutely exactly Uh, do you want to share my research yeah Yeah, (laughs) um, actually I think it's perfect that I'm going after Daphne uh, because I work at the intersection of race and I guess Latino identity Um, so I I study religion in northeastern Brazil with Afro-Brazilian populations in Bahia And um, specifically, I do comparative religion work. I'm an anthropologist, but I look at how people from different religious backgrounds uh, conceptualize community and think about civic action. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think sometimes it helps for me to explain why I decided to do this. So uh, in Brazil, in recent years, a lot of neo-Pentecostal religious uh, groups have become very popular and are have equally been quite antagonistic towards uh, traditional Afro-Brazilian religions. And in a place like Salvador, you can walk down a block and find like 10 different churches, like within 500 feet of each other. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to understand how people who live in the same neighborhood and go into these different religious spaces, conceptualize the community and create community despite these very different religious and political ideas. and in recently in Brazil, if people aren't uh, aware of Brazilian politics, these uh, occurrences of violence have been extremely heightened, um, including people beating up people who frequent Afro-Brazilian uh, religious centers, mm-hmm. um, destroying altars, destroying churches and temples. So it's I felt it was important to do this kind of work. Yes, like there's urgency there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, this is also pre-Trump. I think now, even in this country, people are thinking about how religion is impacting people's thoughts about politics and the type of world they want to live in. Um, So, yeah, this was pre that, though. I Mm -hmm. was doing research in 2014. Wow. So I guess what what was that like? Uh, You spoke a little bit about the difficulties in, like, really uh, capturing all the concepts in a single question. So what, what... you kind of elaborated like a beautiful very cool very engaging idea so i guess what was what was it like actually pursuing it ah it was hard first (laughs) of all i didn't think about what it was going to mean to be in a place as beautiful as northeastern brazil like on the beach (laughs) and to be going into churches every day instead of going to the beach (laughs) so um and also just being in church all day like you know i grew up uh Catholic, Haitian Catholic. Um, So I was familiar with church, but church every day was difficult. Mm. Um, And then the other thing that was difficult is that 
I was going between these three spaces and I was very honest and open which with each of the churches. So I was in a Catholic church, a Candomblé Tejero, which is like a temple of this Afro-Brazilian uh, Yoruba-based religion, and um, a Neo-Pentecostal church uh, called Igreja Universal. It's one of the biggest Neo-Pentecostal churches in Brazil and quite large throughout the world. Um, including they have one here in Harlem. Um, so I was going between the three churches and, you know, at a certain point in my research, people kept urging me to sort of choose an alliance. Mm. Like, oh, but what religion do you really like? Wow. And, you know, trying to get me, convert me or get me to ba be baptized. Um, so that became difficult too, sort of trying to navigate this uh, liminal objective space mm -hmm. when you know, I felt at a certain point, it feels like what is too much um, to be in someone's space and not be able to mm -hmm. give them back something mm -hmm. when they want you to like, you know, make a commitment to that space. Right. Mm -hmm. But this is a whole other conversation about anthropological <laughs> positionality <laughs> in the field. But yeah. Oh, wow. I do have a quick question. This is about what, something that it seems really interesting about your research. So, you were in Bahia, right, mm -hmm. which is like Afro-Brazilian. Predominantly black, right? Yes. Afro-Brazilian. Um, so I've been reading recently actually about like that violence against people who are practicing um, Afro-Brazilian tradition. And what's interesting to me is that it's still in many cases like intra-racial violence, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely um, it is. So just in terms of like defining like where boundaries around communities end and begin, like I, I yeah. Yeah. I guess that's not really a question, but it is. <laughs> um, but I'm wondering just if you could say more about that. Yeah, you know, um, so it is intraracial. Um, the community, maybe I should have said before, the community that I worked in is predominantly Afro-Brazilian. Um, and when I'm in Brazil, like most people assume I'm Brazilian. So when I went into the field, I didn't want to lead anyone. So I never brought up race and I never asked people directly what race they thought they were. Because... Mm -hmm. Because I wanted to see, and it's a very loaded con conversation in Brazil, how people would self-identify if they called themselves black or not, right? And there are different terms for black in Brazil. There's like a hundred different terms for skin color. and But a more politicized category for black is negro or negra. And in Candomblé, most of the people, regardless what tone of brown, black they were, self-identified as being negro, negra, right? Only one woman in Igreja Universal, the Neo-Pentecostal Church, self-identified as black, and none of the Catholics ever self-identified with me as being black. Mm, um, and I think that in this violence, um, I'm currently writing something about this right now, I think there's a way that blackness is being conceptualized um this new form of blackness that is attached to a neo-pentecostal religious identity is a blackness that is based in a sort of forward-looking idea of race so there's a way that they talk about these african traditional religions as being witchcraft as being demonic as being you know like the disease that you know african past brought with them but, you know, we're a blackness that's based in like the evangelical missions in Africa. Mm -hmm. So they're like feeling a bond through evangel uh, evangelized populations in Africa rather than placing their blackness in this past like ex-slave identity. Right. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
So we're kind of like in the aftermath of that many uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Cornell West <laughs> uh, beef situation. And uh, Jelani Cobb actually penned like a, a Twitter defense of Ta-Nehisi Coates in which he mm-hmm. said that a lot of the issue that people have with him is that he, he, he's not a traditional academic. He doesn't go the you know traditional route. He didn't get his PhD. He dropped out of Howard, mm-hmm. in fact, and he's getting genius grants. And that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And for some of the reasons that you kind of outlined, I think, in terms of how difficult the process is and to mm-hmm. go through all that just to have somebody else like just just do the work as well seems like rub people the, the the wrong way i'm curious what you guys think about that whole mini beef critique uh and all the conversation around it right so i actually find academic or semi-academic beefs really amusing yeah <laughs> i know like, right wow you have a lot of time on your hand like right now um it's just it's just funny to me uh just to see you know the argumentation or lack thereof and like how personal it actually gets mm. i think for me i can see i don't know if that's necessarily the case for cornell west but i do see in general yeah like there might be some saltiness like on the part of academics uh when it comes to um what they might consider like non-academics or people without phds who have large platforms who are drawing on research because i can't say that about ta-nehisi coates he truly he really weaves academic research and Mm -hmm. insights into all of his pieces that he does it in a way that's accessible to the general population. Right. One of the Poetic. issues with mm-hmm. academics is we are so busy publishing for other academics to get these pats on the back mm-hmm. that we forget that there are people whose lives could be impacted mm-hmm. if they just yes. had the kind of knowledge that we had, if somebody just wanted to share it with them. Um, so I applaud the work that ta Coates uh, is doing. I want to figure out how can I do that and also get tenure. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a fine right. line that you have to walk, but you can't get mad because somebody else is doing what you want to do. You just need to figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I think, too, ta Coates, like, he's not out there fronting. Like, he's the first person, whenever he is speaking engagements, to be like, I didn't finish school. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it was rough. Like, I, you know... I think he calls himself primarily a journalist and a poet like, Mm -hmm. you know, so I don't know how academics could be upset with someone who (laughs) has never purported to be right. An academic like he's never purported Mm -hmm. to be that. Um, But I do think that beef is good for, you know, just like progress, like, you know, even like a good hip hop beef, like it's Mm -hmm. like that, like academics and writers have always had kind of like mini dramas. The unfortunate part, the part that makes me like recoil is that like for black people, it's like airing our dirty laundry, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's like Mm -hmm. two beloved people in our community. We don't want to see it going down, but I actually do think it's good for pushing thought forward for pushing theory forward, for thinking deeply about things. Um, Yeah. It's actually really funny because sometimes you, if you like go through, go through academic journals, sometimes you will find like replies back and forth. This is is a normal part of like the academic process. It's just when it becomes personal Mm -hmm. and it becomes personal, even in those journals, but it's (laughs) so funny. Like, wow. Like y'all are really upset over this research. (laughs) I've read things in journals and I'm like, damn. (laughs) 
you just said that like <laughs> i actually am worried about that like one day you when you publish you open yourself to that mm. like someone could be like oh last month rachel kentav said xyz and that is bullshit yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, that's and, like, my whole life will be over right <laughs> I mean, I think though that's the part, those are the parts, I think the internet in some ways just like scares me a little bit. Like, I agree with you that I think that those kinds of like beefs or like conflicts, even when they're in public, can be useful to some extent, right? Because like they encourage other people to challenge like whatever kind of thinking or claim they've already accepted without having like interrogated it further. So like that's helpful. But then when they're so public and mm. then also start personal. getting a little personal too, then I, I mean, like, Tanasi Coates deleted his Twitter account. You know, know what I mean? And I was yeah. just like, um, and I don't know what's going on in Cornell West's, you know, personal side of this. But I just, <laughs> I imagine that, like, I mean, so I, I published one of my, like, first non-academic, just, like, regular-ass articles a few weeks ago. Um, and it ended up on somebody's Instagram. And then I was like, oh, let me read the comments. I'm sure that I'll be good. <gasps> no. Never do that. So now I know. Rookie oh, mistake. no. But immediately I was like, oh, shoot. Like, wow, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said, you know, and I'm like trying to get my life like after reading these comments. And so I, you know, I wonder like how, like what, um, whether like the sort of benefits of those public disputes kind of outweigh at least the, the personal costs of it. I find that like one thing you learn through the PhD process is how to write in a way to try to avoid this kind of beef. To minimize that, the backlash. Yeah, to minimize it. Like when I'm writing something, even if it's not academic, right? I'm like, you know, uh, this may have been, this ought to be, you know, according to this specific research some model. Research has found possibly right? that in they some have situations sometimes. that this looks like. Yeah. Perhaps in a particular instance, this happens. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. With that being said. I think, I think one of the things that was brought up is kind of like, we live in a time now where like everything is so public. You put one thing out there, uh, a mistake or a, just if you just said something wrong or it came out wrong like people are twitter is just so quick people <laughs> yeah. are quick and yeah. they will pounce yeah. so like you have to like be really careful with you what you put out there and what you say now because it will haunt you forever and people yeah you'll end up deleting your twitter and deleting your facebook and all of that um yeah i think that's the scary part of like academic beefs Absolutely. Or any beef, yeah. <laughs> well, um, well, you brought up an interesting uh, point previously that I'm I'm interested in. So, you talked about how tough it is, you know, to actually, you know, go get get tenure, while at the same time still wanting to do the work. And it's it's tough to find time to you know engage with the public in a meaningful way to have the research and the work that you're doing actually have the impact that you wanted to have when you're spending so much time writing for other academics or playing that, uh, you know, that political battle in terms of like staying on this person's good side, staying on that person's good side, trying to teach the students, you know, wh where's the time to actually, you know, become hone, hone your craft as a writer. Where's the time to actually hone your craft as, as a speaker. Mm -hmm. um, and, and how, how, if, if there's a path to, to do that, because I feel like there's not too many academics that, you know, can walk that line uh, in, in a, I guess in a, in a, like that type of special way. 
I know uh, some professors that um, have given me some advice or they uh, some professors, they say that for every academic article they write, they try to write some type of piece, whether it's like for the Huffington Post or mm -hmm. like a blog or like some type of op-ed. But if they write an academic journal, they try to match it with a public article or journal. Um, and I'm also realizing like you cannot wait for people to come to you. You kind of have to like put your stuff out there, um, create a platform or a, a web, um, uh, like a web identity for yourself so that people can find you in your work. So I uh, did a fellowship at the University of California Davis Center for Poverty Research, and we had to write a policy brief. And I wrote a policy brief about the relationship between like gentrification and school redistricting and how it negatively uh, impacts communities, um, especially communities of color. And that was like four years ago. And I still get random emails from people like, oh, my goodness, my school district is, you know, undergoing a redistricting process. Like, is there anything you can do to help us? So it's just yeah. kind of like if you put things on the Internet, people will contact you. Mm -hmm. Like I literally get at least one or two emails every year about how can we make the school redistricting process less contentious um, and more productive for our students. So, wow. Yeah, I think um, the platform that you're talking about and also honing specifically speaking skills, I found that conferences were so important to my PhD experience and even now uh, in terms of putting me in contact with other academics of color and learning about what they're doing, being able to joint, like make spaces for us. Um, and also because I work in Brazil, I am really interested in, cross-national connections mm. between people in the African diaspora, right? Like, I know so many Brazilian PhD students whose work just doesn't get read by American scholars or American public, whose Black Lives Matter in uh, movements in Brazil are not linking with Black Lives Matter movements here in the U.S. And so I found that through conferences in different countries, especially some that do a really great job of linking with local universities, mm -hmm. has provided me with the contacts with local people in different places that could potentially lead to these kinds of uh, cross-national conversations and uh opportunities to work on the ground with different communities that I think for me is very fulfilling in my work as an academic. That's why I love the moon. Every night it's there for you. It's constant. Unlike these human beings. What's your biggest dream, I guess, for Ebony Tower? Um, for me, I'll say I envision it as more than just a website, actually. I'd love for it to be um, eventually turn into meetups, um, to turn into like workshops, traveling workshops about applying to graduate school. Like when I was uh, a graduate student at Purdue, we used to put on a day long workshop called Grad 101, where we, you know, kind of went through every aspect of applying to graduate school. And it's just kind of like maybe we can like turn those into workshops on college campuses and have meetups for, um, 
graduate students of color, especially in cities where um, they are the mini minorities, but you know they want to like reach uh, across campuses to meet other uh, students of color. Yeah, I agree. I see this as being a space you can go to for whatever it is you need, right? So while I was writing my dissertation, I probably would have done better in the process if I had a writing group. So I envision Ebony Tower being the kind of place you can go to. You can find a writing group. Maybe you can find all the websites you need to find a job in academia and a website that has all the grants that you could apply to for your uh, major. Um, and also, I'd love to see Ebony Tower uh, bridge some of the space between different people of color, you know, um, Latinos in grad school, black people in grad school, Afro Latinos in grad school, Asian, South Asian, you know, I think that we have a lot of separate conversation, but we're stronger together. So I'd love to see that connection between different people of color. Wow. That's amazing. So I guess what is the one piece of advice from each of you guys that you'd want people to have? Just, just throw that out there. The one nugget. Make it make it good. <laughs> about grad school specifically. About anything. But about yeah, sure. That's what you guys do. Grad school. So, so. so like I'm applying to grad school this year. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. what would you <laughs> what's Ooh. your like, you know, your crispest, like most important little nugget of advice? I'ma say mine. <laughs> mine is make sure you find the right advisor. Your mm -hmm. advisor is the gatekeeper. They are the pathway opener. You will need them throughout the process. You'll need them after for those letters of recommendation. Daphne and I can do another podcast with horror <laughs> stories. Okay? Horror <laughs> stories for an hour. So make sure you find the person that fits whatever it is you need throughout your process, who you feel comfortable going to for letters of recommendation, because it's not even just the PhD. It's afterwards as well that mm. you need to have a good relationship with that person. Um, so I would say kind of, um, I'll, I'll do it towards graduate school as well. People don't really think about the importance of location, but you kind of mentioned earlier isolation that people experience in graduate school. Being a graduate student in Boston was very different than being a graduate student in West Lafayette, Indiana, where there was literally nothing to do, uh, <laughs> no one to date, um, <laughs> So, yeah, the, the struggle is real. So if that matters to you, try to find a graduate school in a location where you will actually be happy and that you could have a life outside of school. Mm. Beautiful. So, yeah, we're, and we're I'll gonna, also oh, say sorry. in general, do what's best for you. Yes. <laughs> in graduate school and in life. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you. I feel enlightened. Me too. <laughs> I'm ready to go see Black Panther. Oh, I'm oh, so yes. ready. Yes. <laughs> so ready. So, so where can they find you guys? Social media, website? Yeah, I mean, you can find us on the ebonytower.com, of course. Um, I have an academia site. I'm not very good at the social meds thing. So, okay. yeah, sorry, guys. R Rachel will be getting um, better at that. I'm <laughs> at Daphne M. Penn on Twitter. You can follow the Ebony Tower at the Ebony Tower underscore on Twitter. And on um, Facebook. But just go on the website and you can follow all of our social media links from Instagram, which Rachel always posts the best memes. I do. Um, and motivational quotes. So yeah, I can do. Um, oh, and we are looking for people to share their experiences. So if you're listening to this and you got horror stories or triumphant stories, whatever you got, we want it on the Ebony Tower. 
So go to the website and send your stories to submissions at theebonytower.com. And also send your questions. You can ask Ebony anything, and we will answer. So, Excellent. Well, Rachel, Daphne, thank you guys for coming. Thank you uh, for joining, joining us in this conversation. We really enjoy it. Uh, and shout out to my co-host, also Maya. <laughs> thank helping you. us premiere this <laughs> new season of Unsolicited Advice. Thank you so much for having us. This was so yes, much fun. Yes, thank you. Yeah, no problem at all. Well, thank you. It's a wrap, guys. Take care. Bye.